Great, good to see, good to see everyone. Um, first thing I want to say is that I was massively blessed by that time of worship just now. Um, because what came through was massively in sync with what I'm about to talk about. And uh, when I looked at my preach this morning, I realized it's too long. It's a massive passage. What on earth do I do with it? So I took a hacksaw to it, basically, and chopped and chopped and chopped and chopped and chopped. And what I've come out with is exactly what God's just spoken to us about. So really, it's what God came out with, which is exactly what God was always planning to speak about. So I'm really excited about that, really encouraged about that, looking forward to investigate a bit more what it means that God is holy, but we can get near him. And so that's exciting. So uh, today I get to continue our series looking at the life of Abraham. It's a series that we've entitled Faith for Fruit. That might sound jargony if uh, you're new among us. So let me just explain why we've called it Faith for Fruit. I called it that because really this series is a continuation of everything we've been looking at and exploring in the Bible over the first half of this year. So in January we started uh, a five-month series looking at Galatians 5, The Fruit of the Spirit. What we discovered was that when we draw near to God, when we see him more clearly and allow him access into every area of our life, we inevitably become more like him. We start to develop the family traits, the fruit of the spirit. And a community like that is very attractive. People want in. We then uh, went from there to look at the whole area of faith. Uh, We spent three weeks of the Mac looking at faith. What is faith? How does it work? How can it grow? And now we're fusing the two themes, faith and fruit, to look at faith for fruit under the uh, subject of this guy, Abraham, one of the most influential and famous people in all of history, a man of great faith whose life produced incredible, lasting fruit. So that's why we're looking at Abraham. That's why we've called it that. Um, Who watched the Wimbledon final last Sunday? Yes. Um, The next I will show you a photo of a winning moment. That's That's a precious moment right there. Yeah. Let's clap Andy Murray. It was incredible, wasn't it? Uh, Forehands, backhands, I know the lingo. Uh, Top spin, slice, drop shot, lobs, serves. Um, It had everything. And it was just an amazing game. Incredible tennis. And uh, I I absolutely loved it. I don't think I've seen Beck and my wife get so into a sporting fixture as that particular one. She she couldn't sit down for excitement and nerves. And a precious moment was when she turned to me halfway through and said, it's so nice to actually support someone good for a change, isn't it? (laughs) Too too many painful experiences in the Blaver household following Arsenal and uh, the English football team. Um, But Djokovic was a great runner-up as well, wasn't he? Um, he was a truly gracious in defeat, um, once he'd run out of uh, opportunities to challenge calls and stuff. Um, but one thing that really struck me was uh, Djokovic's uh, runners-up interview immediately after the match. I don't know if you, if you picked it up. Uh, we were there still enjoying the euphoria of Murray's victory, and then Djokovic took the mic, and first of all, he congratulates Andy Murray, but then he turns and he congratulates the rest of us. He actually said, well done, British public, for producing a British champion. The thing is, I had diddly squat to do with it. Um, I mean, I'd certainly sat down on my chair and shouted out, come on, Murray, and we can do this. But by we, I meant, you can do this, Andy Murray, and uh, I'll sit here and watch you, Uh, much like I shout at, again, the screen when Arsenal play. And yet, to be honest, it felt perfectly natural and perfectly appropriate for Djokovic to say, well done to me, to us. Um, All we did was sit in our armchairs while Murray sweated out, And yet we were so involved. We got so caught up in it. 
uh, Maui's victory somehow became our victory. His story became our story. His success became our success. He was our champion. And so it felt right for us to be congratulated. We were caught up in it so much. You know, whenever, whenever you pick up the Bible and read about one of the many great men or women of faith, or communities of faith that you read about in the scripture, what we're reading is actually not their story, God's story. What we've been so caught up in, that men and women have been so caught up in, it's actually not their work and their effort, but his work, his initiative, his successes, his victories, God's story, Jesus' story. We're going to look at Abraham's story, which is actually God's story this morning. He catches us up. We get to share in it, partake in it. Now, we're not going to see Abraham sitting back on his armchair and shouting at a screen, no, no. But what we are going to see is, looking at the next part of his journey, we'll discover incredibly that every significant moment that Abraham goes through actually points forward to someone greater than Abraham, to the real focus of the story, to Jesus, who would walk the earth 2,000 years after Abraham, and yet it's all about him. And you discover something more about him. And you know what? When you do, it's just incredible. It just warms your heart and lifts your eyes, colors your, your worship, and strengthens your faith. So today, we're going to look briefly at Abraham's encounter with a person, a priest. And it's significant. It will tell us about Jesus. And that's all we're really going to do. There's a, fa- there's a fair amount of thinking today. It's quite a lot of theology. Uh, I thought, hot, hot summer's morning, what, what more do you want to do then? Come and think. Um, but actually, it's not just academic. It's not thinking for the sake of it. It really does strengthen our understanding of who God is, which can only lead to greater confidence in approaching him, all, all that we've discovered in worship, and also inviting others to approach him. So that's where we're going. Abraham's story. So what I'm going to do to start with is just to really give us a bit of a recap on where we got to last week. Gus spoke excellently last week, giving us really Abraham's first move, uh, which was that Abraham heard the, the call of God and left his hometown, Ur of the Chaldeans, as it was called, with all its ritual pagans and worship. Well, actually, Abraham left that. But pretty soon, straight after he left, he found himself in trouble. There was a famine in the land. He was hungry, and so he wanted to find somewhere quick and somewhere safe where he could get some food. And so rather than going God's way, he went to Egypt. Now, the thing you need to know about Abraham is he's not much to look at. Wouldn't have won many beauty pageants, but his wife Sarai, she was gorgeous. And Abraham knew that. And so when he went his way to Egypt, he thought, oh, the Egyptians are going to hate me because they're going to love her and they're going to hate the fact they can't have her. So what did he do? Pretend that she was his sister. And all got pretty dark and pretty messy. Um, Abraham's cover got blown and so he left Egypt and he left actually a rich man. Loads of stuff, loads of sheep and you know, that was their currency now that's because sheep and stuff. Uh, loads of stuff. He left rich but also covered in God's grace and forgiveness. And Abraham had a nephew called Lot, and he had loads of stuff through, too. Lot had a lot. Um, come on. <laughs> so excited about that part of this talk. <laughs> I was really disappointed that didn't come through in worship. But, um, uh, he had a lot, too. And so in order to avoid exhausting the land, uh, Abraham went to the east, Lot went to the west. They went their separate ways. Okay? That's where, we, that's where we left things last time. Now, let me summarize what happens next. We're not going to read the whole of chapter 14 because there's a lot to read, but I'm going to summarize it. I'm going to summarize it using a map. 
partly because Gus used a map last week, and I thought that made him look clever. Um, but also, actually, it's much easier to understand it pictorially. Now, at the beginning of chapter 14, what you would read is that um, the Middle East in Abraham's day was much like it is today, uh, full of political tension, which often overspilt into violence. And we're told that from the east, so um, somewhere up there past Damascus, there was an alliance of kings that formed, led by a guy called Kerdalauma. Okay? Um, now, by kings, you need to understand, it's not, we're not talking about great kingdoms like uh, our, our kings and queens of the past. We're talking about uh, tribal leaders, really, of cities about 5,000 to 10,000 big. So they would often get together. And Kerdalauma got together with three other kings to form an alliance, a coalition government, if you like. There's nothing new. In the su- under the sun. Okay. And, and, and his alliance decided they were going to move down south um, along the kind of Red Sea, uh, the Dead Sea rather, and, and then and flank down the bottom and move it back up north, basically annihilating everything in their way and taking land and gaining more possessions. So what they did was they, they ransacked Sodom, they ransacked Gomorrah, and they, they started moving up the top just by the Dead Sea there. Now, Lot had made his home in Sodom. That's where he'd gone. And so in the process of getting the kings of Sodom and Gomorrah and all their booty, uh, Kerdalauma and his, and, and his followers also took Lot with them. And Abraham heard that Lot was in trouble, that he'd been carried off by this alliance, and uh, he was deeply moved by it. So he thought, well, I'm going to do something about this. He got 318 trained men, that's all, mm-hmm. and he went after them, a hit squad. And incredibly, Abraham defeated Kerdalauma and all of his other uh, armies, which presumably had grown because they'd just had a massive victory, and won back Lot and brought him back to safety. That's where we're going to pick up the story. Okay? Uh, and the, the king of Sodom is also replaced into his home city. So that's where, that's where we're at. And Lot is safe again. Now, before we do move on, I just want to make a quick aside note, which is I'm deeply challenged by Abraham's view of family and the value of family. Um, he hears that Lot's in trouble and he's immediately seeking to meet Lot's needs, to help him at whatever cost and at whatever inconvenience. Makes me ask myself, how quick am I to meet the needs of my family? Uh, how generous is my heart towards them? Is a family need or crisis an inconvenience to me or an opportunity to dis- display love and to, to meet need? Now, I'm not saying you know, we're the answer to every problem from uh, second cousin twice removed to Aunt, great aunt Betty. I'm not saying that. What I'm saying is, are our hearts predisposed to be towards being generous to our families or actually to preserving ourselves? Uh, and I'm challenged by that. In fact, I'm constantly having to assess whether my decisions are generous and honoring or actually just pretty self-centered. And I've got to say, for me, uh, where I'm at, we've not all got great families. But um, I'm constantly humbled by the generosity of my family to me. And so it makes me think, hang on, wh- this guy Abraham clearly had got something of the heart of God about families. That's a quick aside. Back to Abraham's story. Lot is safe. Abraham has won an impressive battle. That's where we're going to pick things up. That's where Abraham meets a priest. So if you turn to chapter 14, and we'll start at verse 17, it'll come up on the screen. Um, yeah, you can read that just. It says, After Abraham returned from defeating Kerdalauma and the kings allied with him, the king of Sodom came out to meet him in the valley of Shaveh. That is the king's valley. Then Melchizedek, king of Salem, brought out bread and wine. He was priest of God Most High, and he blessed Abraham, saying, Blessed be Abraham 
by God Most High, creator of heaven and earth. And praise be to God Most High, who delivered your enemies into your hand. And then Abraham gave him a tenth of everything. The king of Sodom, different character, then said to Abraham, give me the people and keep the goods for yourself. What he's saying is, thanks for defeating Kerdalama. Can I have all my people back, but I guess you can keep all the goods. Uh, what Abraham then says to king of Sodom is, with raised hand I have sworn an oath to the Lord, God most high, creator of heaven and earth, that I will accept nothing belonging to you, not even a thread or the strap of a sandal, so that you'll never be able to say, I made Abraham rich. Okay? That's, that's our little bit. What's going on here? What's the big deal about this priest Melchizedek? Where does he even come from? He seems to appear out of nowhere. I mean, surely the story would read more neatly if verses 18 to 20 were just skipped out altogether. Abraham wins a great battle. Abraham returns to Sodom to drop Lot off. Uh, the king is also dropped off. And then Abraham has this exchange with the king of Sodom. I mean, that would make more sense, isn't it? But in the middle, we've got a gate crasher, Melchizedek, who comes right in there, but just three verses. He's not greedy, but he's there. What's that all about? He refreshes Abraham with bread and wine. Tells him that the battle he just won actually was God's victory and he just got caught up in it. Then he blesses Abraham and receives from him a tithe. A tithe, an act of honor, even worship. Way beyond tithing was the done thing in God's people. So Abraham clearly recognizes Melchizedek is greater than he is because Melchizedek is the one who gives the blessing and receives the tithe. So what's it all about? There's something about Melchizedek. There's something about him. And what I'd like to invite you to do is to investigate with me. What is this thing about Melchizedek? There's a bigger story going on here. Let's do some detective work. Melchizedek then. Well, he, he comes onto the scene with no great introduction. Now, even to this day in Eastern cultures, people of importance are introduced, not by telling you much about them, but by telling you a lot about their parents, particularly their father, because it's a paternalistic system. So, for example, if I was of importance, I might be introduced as Mike, the son of Steve, formerly of the MOD, with a cleft in his chin, a handsome guy, who married Anne and now works for a church in Eastbourne. That might be my introduction. They wouldn't say much about me. It's not important. What's important is where did I come from? What's my heritage? And the scriptures are written with an Eastern context. And so, virtually always, a person of importance in scripture is introduced as the son or daughter of so-and-so. Okay? For example, well, there's loads of examples. Um, I'm not going to go there. Start listing off genealogies. So, but not, not Melchizedek. Not Melchizedek. There's not even a hint of a suggestion of who his dad or who his mum is. He can't be important then, you say. Ah, oh, but he is. He's very important, as we'll come on to see. The plot definitely thickens. What are we told about him then? Well, what we're told is we're given his name. His name is Melchizedek. That means king of righteousness. That's a good name. It's a really good name. We're also told that he's the king of Salem. Now, scholars will say that Salem is almost certainly uh, what we'd now call Jerusalem. Uh, Salem was a suffix, and there's many prefixes given to that word Salem, but this was probably Jerusalem. What does Salem mean? Well, it comes from the Hebrew, which means shalom, peace, not just peace, fullness of peace. So Melchizedek is king of righteousness and king of peace. So we're told something about him, but nothing about his parentage. Interesting. Uh, so Melchizedek is king of righteousness, king of peace. But more than that, in verse 18, we're told 
He's also a priest, priest of God Most High. What is a priest? What do priests do? Well, um, a priest is someone who mediates between God and man, someone who represents man before God and offers sacrifice to God and then teaches mankind, people, about God so that there can be some connection because God is holy and people are not, so there needs to be a mediator, some point of connection, who offers sacrifices for himself and then for the people. That's what a priest is. But here Melchizedek comes to Abraham with bread and wine and a blessing and declares it was God most high, creator of heaven and earth, who delivered Abraham's enemies into his hands. What is he saying? He's saying, Abraham, your story is actually part of God's story. He's hinting at it there. That's what he's doing there. That's Melchizedek. Now, here's the interesting thing. Melchizedek, given just three small verses here, is actually the centerpiece of one of the most significant psalms in the Bible. The psalm that is most quoted in the New Testament. What's the psalm I hear you say? Psalm 110 is the answer. Now, we're not going to turn to it, but you can do later. Psalm 110 is what is called a messianic psalm. That means it's all about the coming Messiah. It's predicting its prophecy. That's what it is. And the psalm is written as if God is speaking to the Messiah. And so verse 4 of Psalm 110, it says, The Lord has promised and will not change his mind. You are a priest forever in the order of Melchizedek. There he is. Melchizedek comes up in the center. In fact, the central verse, it's almost the very middle of that psalm. One of the most important psalms in the Bible. This cameo figure in Genesis is back with a vengeance. Then later on, in the Bible, in the book of Hebrews, three whole chapters are given to Melchizedek. And they're given to explaining who he is and why it's important. And the writer gets pretty excited about Melchizedek. Who gets excited about Melchizedek? Oh, (laughs) Bill occasionally. (laughs) By waving arms. Um, But he gets excited because if you get him, if you get Melchizedek, you understand something about Jesus. And it changes everything. So, what is the thing about Melchizedek? Well, to get Melchizedek, we just need to briefly look at the priest system in Judaism uh, because it's in that light, in that context, that you can understand what it means that Jesus is a priest in the order of Melchizedek. Are you with me? Great. I know there's a lot. It's quite complicated, but you're doing great. So, um, the next slide is going to show two um, photos, two pictures. Not not photos. I didn't take them. Um, which are actually artistic impressions of two different types of priests. On the right, you've got a Levitical priest, and on the, on the left, you've got um, Melchizedek. Now, we're going to call this guy on the right Bob, okay? And we're going to call this guy on the left Melk, because <laughs> uh, he's Melchizedek. Um, Bob is the type of priest that all of the Jewish people would, would know about. If you said the word priest, they'd think about Bob, okay? He's a priest in the order of Aaron, okay? Now, these priests were established in Israel after the people of Israel had been rescued from Egypt. That's another 500 years or so on from where we meet Abraham here and now. 500 years or so after Melchizedek is on the scene, that's when these priests even come into existence. At that point, God brings Israel out of captivity and commands Moses to appoint his brother, Aaron, as priest, as mediator, as the one who could offer up sacrifices for the people and teach the people about God. Teach the people about what specifically? The law of God, which was given to Moses. Moses was given the law, which detailed exactly what sacrifices Aaron and then Bob uh, should offer to God. 
and how they should be offered in order to make it acceptable before God who's intensely holy and unapproachable. You can't come before God. He's God. He's perfect. He's a consuming fire. And so you need a mediator, and that mediator should be Bob, and he should be dressed in that way, and he should offer the sacrifices detailed in the law, and everything should be just so. Okay? The law dictated it. And, and Bob, or Aaron rather, was actually um, descended from Levi as well. So he was, he was a Levite in terms of the tribe of Israel. So Bob here is a Levitical priest. That's where that comes from, okay? Happy with that? Whereas Melk is not a Levitical priest. Why? Because he was born way before Levi. He existed way before Aaron, way before Levi. In fact, before there was even Israel, there was Melchizedek. So he's much earlier. In fact, that's very interesting, isn't it? Because that means that Melchizedek must be a very different type of priest to Aaron. In what sense? In four senses. Let's look at the four senses. Number one, firstly, Bob here gets to be a priest only because he's got the right mum and he's got the right dad. Okay? It's all based on genealogy. He's got the right parents. He inherits his priesthood. A bit like Will and Kate when they have their baby. When will it come? Who knows? Um, their baby will be royal. Absolutely will be because he's got the right, or she, has got the right mum and got the right dad. Okay? That's not the case with Melchizedek, though. We've already seen. We have no idea who his mum and dad is. We don't know his genealogy. So Melchizedek's priesthood is not dependent upon biologics or human descendants. It's ordained by God quite apart from that. That's interesting. Bear that in mind. Number two, Bob can only take up office as priest between the age of 25 and 50. Why? Because that's what the law said. If you look in Leviticus, it says a, a priest can serve before God between the age of 25, when they're perhaps in their prime, uh, and then between the age of 50, which in those days was perhaps a little bit older than it is now. That was just the law at that time. That was what the Jewish custom required. And so what that tells us is there's a very definite start to Bob's priesthood. There's a de very definite end to Bob's priesthood. It's temporary. It's absolutely temporary. Not so with Melchizedek, though. Why? Well, his priesthood predates the giving of the law. It has no set beginning, no set end. And once again, we don't know who his mum and dad is. And so the writer of Hebrews says in chapter 7, it's as if Melchizedek has no beginning and has no end. He's a priest forever. His priesthood doesn't come for an end. It's very different to Bob's. Interesting. Second point. Third point. Bob's whole priestly activity is, as we've discussed, governed by the written law, the law of Moses given at Mount Sinai. The Levitical priesthood and the law go hand in hand. There's no priest without the law. There's no law without the priest. They administer the law to the people. That's their job. That's what their priesthood is all about. That's not the case with Melchizedek, though, is it? For sure, he too was a priest of the same God, of God Most High, creator of heaven and earth. But his priesthood predates the law. It's not about the law. And so he ministers before God, not from a list of do's and don'ts. Do this sacrifice, don't do that sacrifice. Do this sacrifice in this way, don't do it in that way. No, no. He, he, he ministers out of a heart completely devoted to God, a life completely given to God, as if the law is written on his heart. And since he's an eternal priesthood, it must be, therefore, always have been God's plans to give a, 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 a provider a truer and a deeper and a fuller way of relating to God than the written law only, a list of do's and don'ts. Under the law of Moses, 
the priesthood is really all about guilt and continual sacrifices. Let's repeat, repeat, repeat. It's about separation from God. You can't come in. But Melchizedek isn't about that because we haven't got the law then. So he ministers to Abraham something different. He provides him bread and wine of refreshment. He blesses him and then he tells him God is working on his behalf. What he says is, not try harder, do this, don't do that, but rest in God's work. Point three, interesting. Point four, final point. Since Bob is a priest, okay, because he's got the right mum and dad, very temporary, it's all about the law. Because he's a priest, he cannot be a king. That's again what the law says. The law says you can't be both priest and king, okay? There's actually one person who tried in history to be both king and priest of God Most High under the Levitical system, and that was a guy called Saul. Heard of him? It went very badly for him. It destroyed him, actually. The law forbids it. But Melchizedek is both priest and king, isn't he? King of righteousness and king of peace combines both offices. And not one of laws or God's law is broken in the process because he, he precedes the law. It's greater than the law. So that's the difference between the two types of priest. What does it tell us about Jesus? It's the killer question. How about the main, story, the main character in the story? Why is it such great news that Psalm 110 says, Jesus is a priest in the order of Melchizedek, not of Aaron? He's more like Melch than Bob. How, how does Melchizedek's appearance sweep us up with Abraham into the greater story of God? Well, it shows us that the burden of the law was never God's final plan for us. It shows us there's a deeper covenant. I don't know if you've ever seen um, The Lion, Witch, and the Wardrobe, the bit where um, Abraham, uh, not Abraham, Abraham wasn't involved. <laughs> he wasn't involved at all. It was a lion. Um, Aslan um, gave his life for Edmund, and then he, he, he came back to life again, and then um, he said, oh, well, hang on, um, how come you're alive again? And, he, and Aslan says to um, Lucy and to uh, Susan, there's a deeper magic. There, there's something deeper before the dawn of time, before the white witch doesn't know anything about this. There's something more. Melchizedek shows us there's something more, something truer, a deeper covenant, a fuller promised, an original priesthood aside from the law, through which people can have direct access to God, not based on what you do, but what he's done. So interesting. It's incredible. A way of coming to God, not based on our tiresome labor, but on his complete work on our behalf, just as Melchizedek said to Abraham, it's God who's been working for you. Okay, and we'll find that God says that again and again to Abraham. There is only one priest in the order of Melchizedek, Jesus no other priest has ever been in the order of Melchizedek. No other priest ever will be. Just Jesus. There is only one way to the Father. It came out. It came out in worship. Jesus. There is only one who can say, come to me all you who are weary and heavy laden. I will give you rest. Jesus. Only a, a priest in the order of Melchizedek. Not in the order of Aaron. Leviticus. And so no priest can do what Jesus can do for us. Like Melchizedek. Jesus' priesthood is not based on human descent. He was from the tribe of Judah, not Levi. 
But Hebrews 7.16 tells us that Jesus' priesthood is based rather on the power of an indestructible life. He's the very son of God. He's God's son, God the son, virgin born. He comes from God. That's who he is. He's the one who came to live a perfect life and perfectly fulfill the law. I'm just pointing in various directions where these words came out in worship. He perfectly fulfilled the law that we couldn't so that as our high priest, he might also become our great sacrifice. The high priest offers himself, the lamb of God, so that by his blood, he might make perfect atonement and work righteousness on our behalf and say, it is finished. God has done it. Give up your tiring labor. Secondly, like Melchizedek, Jesus' priesthood is not temporary. It's not temporary. He has no beginning and no end. He's always been the true high priest. He's an eternal priest. God has declared, you shall be a priest in the order of Melchizedek forever. Forever. His is an eternal priesthood. What does that mean, folks? What does it mean? Listen, it means you need never worry about whether you can come to God. You need never worry about whether you have a high priest sufficient enough for you. You can always come, if you come, through him. Through him. He is the only way to the Father. He is a priest forevermore, perfectly forever, representing us before God the Father. It was the Father's plan. He's not reluctant about this. He's not like, oh, he got me. No, he's, it was his plan. It's the Father's delight to give us his son so that, like his son, we might delight in him. It's amazing. Hebrews 7.25 says, He is able to save to the uttermost those who will draw near to God through him since he always lives to make intercession for us. Jesus always lives. He was risen. He's alive. It's cast iron fact. It happened whether you believe it or not. And so he is always able to make intercession for those who will trust him and come to him and lay hold of him. With a perfect high priest, there's no fear in death anymore, therefore. We can live a life of great fruitfulness, not worrying about being someone in ourselves because we have someone so great in him. Finally, like Melchizedek, Jesus is both eternal priest and eternal king. He's everything. He is the bold king of righteousness. He is able to bestow righteousness on us. He is the king of peace, able to administer peace to us, as well as being the great high priest. So he comes to us with kingly authority and with priestly accessibility. It's amazing. It's amazing. Squeaky voice time. <laughs> Thank God for Melchizedek. Okay? How amazing that this priest should enter into Abraham's story to help us to see it's all God's story. It's all Jesus' story. He just loves catching us up in it so that we can live a life of great joyful faith which produces great joyful fruit. It warms your heart and it enables you to approach boldly before God. Okay? You're glad that I cut out the rest, aren't you? Um, To finish, what happens to Abraham immediately after this encounter with Melchizedek? We've not got time to read it, okay? Um, It's hot, and uh, we want to make sure that we we honor the kids' workers. Um, But can I encourage you, over the next few days, can you read Genesis 15, 1 to 21? And um, can you try and do that before small group? Because I'll give a few notes in small group so we can discuss the kind of next chapter, as it were, of Abraham's journey. 
and uh, see how incredible the events are. What you'll find is that God gently meets Abraham and calms his fears and calms his doubts and once again assures him God himself is working on his behalf. Abraham needed reminding this again and again and again. The very next verse, after this great victory and this great encounter with Melchizedek, he's suddenly quite vulnerable and quite fearful. How many times do we have great successes and then feel like we're so weak? God comes to us and says, I'm your shield. That's what he's going to do to Abraham. Your hope is in me. It's, me. it's my plan for you. Don't worry. Don't strive. You'll find then that he makes mind-blowing promises to Abraham, which he cannot possibly contribute anything to. Abraham can't have any children. Sarai can't have any children. God says, look at the stars. That's how many your descendants are going to be. Can you count them? Scientists say 10 to the power of 24 stars in the known universe. It's more than millions of billions of gazillions of chameleons of whatever. We haven't got words for that. And we're always finding more. There's so many people to come in. So many people to draw into this story of God. His heart is so big. His mission is so great. His love for us, so pursuing. Our priest, his finished work, so finished that when you look out at the stars, not in Birmingham, but somewhere else, <laughs> you can't even begin to count them, can you? I can count three from my garden. <laughs> it's more than three of us in the room. Um, there's so many. It's God's great promise. And do you know what? Abraham did diddly squat for his promise to be completed. God did it all. It was God. It's all God's story. It's all God. Won't you get swept up in it again? Won't you look to him again? Just three responses um, for the summertime. One is, over this summer, let's rest in him. If you're prone to striving, to trying to justify yourself, to feeling like, oh dear, I must read my Bible more, tell more people about Jesus, I must do this, I must do that. Stop and rest. See him again, it is done, it is finished. And then you'll get to want to discover more about him out of a completely different heart. Sometimes you need to stop in order to be able to start from a completely different perspective. Rest in him, delight in him. Number two, do read your Bible and discover Jesus in every page. Do the kind of investigator thing. L look for him. He's there. He's not hard to miss. He's not... He's hard, uh, I don't know what I'm saying, but what I'm saying is he's there. Find him. And then thirdly, let's invite others. Please, let's invite others. This promise is so great. This story is so wonderful. So many to get swept up in it. In autumn, we're running Alpha at Oasis Church. This is a great time to start thinking, who am I going to bring? Who's going to get to know something of the story of God? I... Let's have the busiest Alpha course we've ever had with more and more people discovering something about who Jesus is. Let's commit to that. Can we commit to that as a church? Can we pray for it? I don't want us just to hear it and then forget it. Let's do it, shall we? We're here to make a difference. We're, we're part of this promise caught up in it. Okay, I'm going to pray and then we'll finish. Um, Lord, I thank you so much that every time we see you, you exceed and blow our expectations. You are a good God. You are our high priest. Thank you that you give us absolute access to Father God, not based on our merit, but based on your merit, Jesus. The work is done. It is finished. We can come. We can rest. There's no one excluded, provided we come through you, our great high priest. And when we do, we discover you're so wonderful. Our hearts burn when you're near us, Lord. And you promise always to be near us. So we love you, and we praise you, and we bless you today. Amen. Great.
why don't we, um, if, if you can grab your um, kids, that would be fantastic, and then have a, have a really good afternoon at Gus's. <laughs>